Hello and welcome to a Backtracker History Show special. My name is Alice, and I'd love it if you joined me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Normally, the podcast is specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show produced in Bristol, England, but not this time. So here's a tale from the past that I found absolutely fascinating. It's all about people who fought for the rights of the poor in the swing riots. The main event in today's tale occurs in 1830. But what else happened that year? Well, on January 13th, a great fire in New Orleans was set, thought to be by rebel slaves. On the 6th of April, Joseph Smith and five others officially organised the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Fayette, New York. On May 28th, US President Andrew Jackson signs the Indian Removal Act, a key law leading to the forced removal of the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek and Seminole tribes out of Georgia and surrounding states, setting the stage for the Cherokee Trail of Tears. And on the 29th of November, the November Uprising began, an armed rebellion against Russia's rule in Poland. But today's tale starts off with the birth of Joshua Kemp in Burnham Thorpe, Norfolk, and tells of his extraordinary exploits. So let's start off with Joshua Kemp, who was born on the 24th of September 1803 at Burnham Thorpe, Norfolk, which was also the birthplace of Admiral Lord Horatio Nelson. Joshua's parents, Charles Kemp and Hannah Williamson, were married by Nelson's father, the Reverend Edmund Nelson, on the 4th of December 1786 at All Saints Church, Burnham Thorpe. The majority of the Kemp family were illiterate, but Joshua wasn't. He could read and write. Education wasn't compulsory during the early 1800s, However, Joshua must have received sufficient schooling to take on the post of parish clerk for Burnham Thorpe. You can find his name with Clark written beside it, witnessing Burnham Thorpe marriages from 1824 to 1830 in the parish registers of All Saints Church. After 1830, Joshua's name disappears from the registers, and it was in late 1830s that the swing riots began in earnest. The Norwich Mercury, in its 4th of December 1830 edition, stated, Joshua Kemp, George Painter and James Smith have since been fully committed to Wassingham Bridewell for trial for breaking and destroying a thrashing machine, the property of Mr William Brett of Burnham Overy in Norfolk. The swing rioters were the agricultural equivalent of the Luddites, The Luddites were a secret, oath-based organisation of English textile workers in the 19th century 
a radical faction which destroyed textile machinery as a form of protest. The group are believed to have taken their name from Ned Ludd, a weaver from Anstey, near Leicester. And instead of Ned Ludd, the Swing writers had Captain Swing as their namesake. Captain Swing is allegedly supposed to have written threatening letters sent to landowners, magistrates, poor law guardians, farmers and clergymen. Captain Swing was never identified. It is believed he never even existed and was created by the rioters as a figurehead and fictional target for their opponents. The seeds of the Swing Riots were sown during the Napoleonic Wars of 1799 to 1815. With many able-bodied men away fighting, threshing machines were introduced to replace the missing manpower. In addition, farm workers had been gradually transformed into short-term contract wage earners without security due to the demise of employing live-in farm servants. In the mid-1820s, William Cobbett, a radical journalist, farmer and member of parliament, born into a farming family in Farnham, Surrey, toured southern England on horseback, reporting on its cultivation, the standard of living of its labourers, and the decline of its traditional practices such as living in. He claimed that new money and new urban styles were upsetting the placid, stable rural economy. Cobbett's agricultural background was often reflected in his role as a spokesperson for farm labourers and their communities, and his experience of farm life helped him to articulate exactly what the workers wanted to say. Word of the Week And for this week's word, I give you... Banjaxed, which means broken or severely damaged. For example, my head is totally banjaxed after last night's drinking session. The introduction of mechanisation was the final straw because it deprived the rural workers of their essential and traditional winter employment of threshing the corn. In rural areas, unemployment increased and poor law expenditure was cut. This led to an increase in crime, mainly due to poaching. Poverty, desperation and discontent were rife in the agricultural areas of England. Following years of war, high taxes, high rents, low wages and poor harvests, by late 1830, the agricultural labourers, without trade unions to represent them, had had enough. They were literally heading for the brink of starvation. With fewer jobs, lower wages and no prospect of improving conditions, the threshing machine provided a ready target for their anger. The scene was set for protest. The swing rioters smashed the threshing machines and threatened farmers who possessed them. Workhouses and tithe barns were also attacked. The demands of the rioters were more employment, higher wages, reductions in rent and tithe payments, better living and employment conditions and a halt to the introduction of threshing machines which threatened their livelihoods. 
However, many families ended up worse off due to the imprisonment of the chief breadwinner. Throughout England, 600 rioters were imprisoned, 500 sentenced to transportation, and 19 executed. On December 17, 1830, two brothers, William and Henry Packman, aged 20 and 18 years, were found guilty at Maidstone Assizes of setting fire to a barn belonging to farmer William Rate of Bleen. Despite finding the brothers guilty, the jury recommended the judge, Mr Justice Bossenquit, should show mercy. The boys had been led astray by others, including another man, John Dyke, who hailed from the nearby village of Burstead. The judge, however, took a dim view of the crime. In his view, the boys were obviously guilty, and nothing he had heard at the trial would induce him to leniency. The brothers and John Dyke were sentenced to hang within days. The three men had the dubious distinction of being the last to be hanged at Penenden Heath on December 24th, 1830. By the following summer, all other local executions would be held at the new scaffold erected at Maidstone Prison. William Colcroft was waiting to dispatch the three unfortunates on the heath. A huge, largely sympathetic crowd had gathered by the time the three prisoners arrived in a heavily protected wagon from Maidstone Prison. But this story does not end there. The offences Dyke was charged with involved two cases of arson, one at Bearstead and the other at Thurnham. It was not until several years after Dyke's hanging that a man on his deathbed admitted to being the real culprit. On the gallows, John Dyke had indeed been telling the truth. Today in the churchyard where he is buried, there is a plaque inscribed with the words, This tree marks the grave of John Dyke, who was hanged for rick burning in 1830, at the last public hanging at nearby Penenden Heath. Subsequently, it was found that he was not guilty of the crime. The 8th of January, 1831, edition of the Norwich Mercury, stated, Joshua Kemp, George Painter and James Smith were charged on the oath of James High, Farmer, with having on the 29th day of November last, riotously and tumultuously destroyed a threshing machine, his property, then in the possession of William Brett of Burnham Overy, a farmer who had hired it off the prosecutor. In this case, Brett in his evidence stated that on the 29th of November between 11 and 12 o'clock, the rioters, in number about 50 persons, came to his house and said they came to break machines. The prisoner Smith said he came to break his threshing machine, which prevented an honest man's day of work. The men had hammers. Smith called out for the mob to break it, saying, It will be used again next week. Painter and Kemp struck it with a sledgehammer and broke it. That is the horse wheel only, which would have cost three or four shillings to put in repair. This evidence having been corroborated by another witness, a farmer, the prisoners were all found guilty. Hey, hey! 
Are you that weird one in your friends group that loves to watch true crime documentaries? Have you ever wanted to learn more about the lesser known crimes? And are you fascinated with ghost stories? I'm Hannah, the creator, editor, and host of Murder Bucket, a podcast that talks about, get this, murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Join me every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts, to get the inside scoop on some of the most interesting topics in the true crime world. I am also very active on social media. You can find me on Instagram at MurdBucket, Facebook at BucketMurd, and Twitter at The Murder Bucket. News just in. A man in Somerset who has declared he has told his suitcases that because of COVID they will not be going on holiday this year has said he's now dealing with emotional baggage. The sentences for Joshua Kemp, George Painter and James Smith were announced in the 15th of January 1831 edition of the Norwich Mercury. George Painter received three months imprisonment, James Smith received nine months, and Joshua Kemp was sentenced to six months imprisonment. By this time, Joshua was a married man with three children and another child on the way. Joshua's case in the quarter sessions at Norfolk Record Office described his crime as felony, destroys threshing machine. Although Joshua was held at Walshingham, Bridewell, before his trial, he was sentenced to serve his six-month term of imprisonment at Swaffham, Bridewell, the last week of which was to be served in solitary confinement. In 1848, Joshua was in trouble with the law again. He was accused and found guilty of selling over a 100 fleeces of stolen wool. Joshua was sentenced to be transported to Western Australia for seven years. Happily, he gained a conditional pardon on the 23rd of April, 1853, and his wife and two of his children joined him in Australia in 1854. Joshua went on to become a tenant farmer in Australia and employed 21 convicts himself. So one can't help but wonder if he ever used a threshing machine on his own farm. I'd like to take a moment to tell you more about William Cobbett, the agricultural labourer's hero. Cobbett defended them and was prosecuted in 1831 by a Whig government that was anxious to prove its zeal in moving against sedition. Acting as his own counsel, Cobbett confounded his opponents and was set free. Yet, despite this threat of another jail term, he supported his persecutors on the issue of parliamentary reform and in 1832, Cobbett was elected to Parliament. At 69 years of age, he found the nocturnal schedule of Parliament an unpleasant contrast to his lifelong preference for early rising and working in the morning. Most members of the House of Commons did not respect him, and Cobbett's parliamentary career was a failure. The unnatural hours hastened his death from influenza on the 18th of June, 1835, at the age of 73. After his death, 
The Times newspaper published an article about Cobbett, saying, Take this self-taught peasant for all in all. He was, perhaps, in some respects, a more extraordinary Englishman than any other of his time. Niter in adversum was a motto to which none could lay equal claim with William Cobbett. Birth, station, employment, ignorance, temper, character, in early life, were all against him. But he emerged from and overcame them all. By masculine force of genius and the lever of a proud, confident and determined will, he pushed aside a mass of obstacles of which the least and slightest would have repelled the boldest or most ambitious of ordinary men. He ended by bursting that formidable barrier which separates the class of English gentlemen from all beneath them and died a member of parliament, representing a large constituency which had chosen him twice. Cobbett was by far the most voluminous writer that has lived for centuries. He has worked with incessant industry for more than 40 years, without, we verily believe, the interruption of so much of a single week from languor of spirit or even from physical weakness. The first general characteristic of his style is perspicuity unequalled and inimitable. A second is homely, muscular vigour. A third is purity, always simple and raciness often elegant. His argument is an example of acute yet apparently natural, nay, involuntary logic, smoothed in its progress and cemented in parts by a mingled stream of torturing sarcasm, contemptuous jocularity and a fierce and slaughtering invective. His faults are causeless, brutality and tedious repetition. Back in the day facts. At about 1.20am on the 26th of April, 1986, the chain reaction inside one of the four reactors at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant went out of control, resulting in massive explosions that blew the 1,000-ton cover off the reactor. 30 people were killed instantly, and many more died as a result of the radioactivity that was discharged. On the 27th of April, 1956, US boxer Rocky Marciano retired as the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world. On the 28th of April, 1772, at Mile End, a goat that had twice circumnavigated the globe, first in the discovery ship Dolphin, under Captain Wallace, and secondly in the renowned Endeavour, under Captain Cook. The Lords of the Admiralty had, just previous to her death, signed a warrant admitting her to the privileges of an in-pensioner of Greenwich Hospital, something she didn't live to enjoy. On the 29th of April in 1429, Joan of Arc entered the besieged city of Orleans with an advance guard leading to a victory over the English a week later. And lastly, on the 30th of April, 1900, Casey Jones, an engineer of the Illinois Central Railroad, died in a famous train crash in Vaughan, Mississippi. He had forfeited his chance to jump in order to stay at the controls.
And now I'm afraid we've come to the end of this particular podcast exclusive. Now I'd like to give a huge thanks to Carrie Ball and Molly Jeffries from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Sandwell, Bristol, as well as Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio for lending their voices and helping make this story come to life. I'd also like to say thank you to Lynn Sharp, who led me towards this story because her ancestor is actually Joshua Kemp, featured in today's tale. And a lot of the information you've had today is from her research into her family history. And it was a sheer fluke that she found out that one of her ancestors was a swing writer. So thank you very much, Lynn, for sharing with us. Now, if you have a tale that you want to share, you can get in touch with me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>